Everybody's talking about the Cleveland Browns this morning. They did something they almost do the opposite of all the time. They won in the final second on a field goal against a team they were not supposed to beat. It's a very big day for Cleveland sports. And it's a big day for news on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Rick Ruan, our statehouse and politics editor, Leila Tassi and Lisa Garvin. Laura is still off for a day out having a good time in the Keys. Let's begin. Cleveland area Catholics have a conundrum on their hands. While their bishop pushes a policy of intolerance towards LGBTQ people, the Pope, who outranks him, is going in the opposite direction. Lisa, what is the Pope's latest statement on the matter? Yeah, this is interesting. Pope Francis was responding from uh, from a, to a request from Bishop Jose Negri of Brazil back in July. And uh, Bishop Negri had six questions about transgender congregants. So on October 31st, uh, Pope Francis published an online announcement about LGBTQ churchgoers. In response to that request, he says that transgender people can be baptized in the church if there's no risk of public scandal or disorientation among the faithful. Of course, this contradicts Cleveland County Catholic Diocese leader Edward Malesic's directive of a couple of months ago that restricts gender expression of any kind in diocese and schools and churches, and that includes things like gender-affirming care and use of pronouns. Uh, Case Western Reserve University Religious and Gender Studies Professor Brian Clyte says, Francis has been pretty consistent on his messaging in being inclusive of LGBTQ members of the church. And of course, it will spark debate and argument in uh, diverse American, American Catholic community. He says this actually gives individual parishes the freedom to be more inclusive if they so desire. But as, as we know, Edward Malesic is pretty much in the opposite direction of what Pope Francis is saying. They also say that Francis' directive also allows uh, LGBTQ members to serve as godparents and to witness Catholic weddings. Yeah, the Pope is being far more welcoming. We, I should point out that after this story published, the Catholic Diocese sent a statement saying that the Pope's statement is completely in keeping with the Cleveland Diocese practices, which I don't hmm. understand at all. Hmm. We should also point out that the Pope removed over the weekend a Texas bishop who was much mm-hmm. more militantly going against the Pope's wishes. So you wonder if Malesic continues to push this message of intolerance, does the bish- does the Pope do something about this? The Pope's message and the bishop's, bishop's messages cannot be further apart. I mean, the, 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 it was draconian. That's why I think so many Catholics reacted the way they did. It was completely intolerant. Whereas the Pope is saying, no, no, welcome, welcome. We welcome all. It'll be issue- interesting to see because as far as we know, Bishop Malesic has not responded to this directive, has he? No, no. It's just they put out a statement late saying this is completely in keeping with what we're about. And I'm looking at it going, what are you talking about? It's the opposite of what you're about. But Maybe he's trying to backpedal. I don't know. It was a strange one. It wasn't attributed to him. It was more from the church itself. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio was part of round two of election battles over abortion last week. Round one, including Kansas and Michigan, where voters supported abortion last year, rejecting campaigns by those who oppose it. Last week, we saw round two, where abortion rights won everywhere that it was on the ballot, despite a new round of often false claims by the anti-crowd. 
Rick, what did Chief Politics writer Andrew Tobias find involving the strategies and messaging in this fight? Well, the anti-abortion groups have been throwing a lot of stuff at the wall, and so far, really, none of it is sticking. Uh, in some ways, the no side of issue one tried running a very similar playbook that anti-abortion forces tried in other states. So you'll probably remember the onslaught of ads we saw early in the campaign that tried to tie the amendment to the destruction of parental consent laws, uh, children having sex changes, things like that. So much of that's kind of linked to our politics of the moment. There's been national stories about the way anti-trans messaging has pulled and the cascade of legislation that has followed. Uh, that works so poorly that the no on issue one group actually ended up bringing in some new blood in the stretch run of the campaign and enlisted a more deeply involved Governor Mike DeWine. Uh, DeWine's involvement was particularly interesting because this is where the messaging kind of diverges from what we had seen in other states and where anti-abortion groups might find some pretty hard lessons for next year's campaigns. For one, they started appealing explicitly to people who actually support a right to an abortion by essentially acknowledging that position, but saying, hey, this amendment just goes way too far. Uh, the ad that sticks in my mind most clearly is the one with DeWine and his wife, Fran, looking directly into the camera, making that appeal. It was almost like a sit down at the breakfast table with your grandparents. Uh, and then they also tried to rewrite reality a little bit about the state's six-week abortion ban by saying the state standard actually is 22 weeks. That's true, but only so far as a court allows it to be. The law of the land is the six-week ban, but that's just on hold right now pending a legal challenge. Then DeWine threw a real Hail Mary in the final week of the campaign. He essentially resurfaced this idea that Ohio needed to clarify the heartbeat bill, which doesn't have exceptions for rape or incest. He had talked about this last year, but dropped it until the kind of final days of the campaign when it was becoming clear that this was going to pass. The big problem here is that, for one, DeWine signed the bill himself without the exceptions and promised to do so during his 2018 campaign. And on top of that, it would take an act of the legislature to make it happen. And DeWine has no control there. In fact, there's been momentum among legislative Republicans to go even further, uh, talking about potentially banning abortion altogether. So the bottom line here is that they probably never stood much of a chance. Abortion rates polled at around 58 percent, and that's pretty close to the margin it got uh, on uh, in this election. And they were campaigning against a popular policy that turns out voters. Yeah, that's what it comes down to is, is the people know where they stand. And so you, you're not going to dislodge them. It was interesting to see them back off of the complete anti-campaign and say, this just goes too far. That ad you're talking about where DeWine says, you know, Ohioans are confused. And I'm thinking, no, they're not. <laughs> they're not confused at all. You're trying to confuse them. Um, what, what also was interesting is in Virginia, where the governor thought that a 15-week ban, that moderate approach, might be the Republican ticket, he was trying to win the second body of his legislature, he lost them both. And so he completely failed and his star has fallen. So I, where do you go if you're an anti at this point? There's no argument that's working. People know exactly how they want to vote. What, what's the strategy for these folks? It, it might end up having to be something along the lines of what you're talking about with a, uh, you know, not an outright ban, but um, finding something that is palatable um, for the electorate at, at large. So, I mean, this stuff is on a spectrum, right? It's not just uh, up or down uh, or abortion or no abortion. You talked about the 15 week ban, which has been something that's been discussed at the national level as well. The reason that 15 weeks gets talked about is 
is polling. Uh, polling uh, shows some support uh, in that neighborhood of a 15-week ban. Um, but like you said, it didn't go so well for Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. So um, I, I guess we'll just have to see kind of where where that next step is. We're, we're going to have uh, something like five more of these next year uh, to to kind of see what else uh, abortion groups are, are going to try to throw at it. I mean, in Ohio, they're, they're saying that they were uh, outmatched in, in terms of money, but, uh, you know, the, the <laughs> polling was pretty clear and, and it hit the mark. That That's just a bogus argument. This wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the messaging. I, I look, I think that that people would rather go the constitutional amendment because it takes it out of the hands of legislatures they can't trust. And look, it'll be on the ballot in Ohio again. Sherrod Brown will have to use this, right? He's going to, whoever he's running against, he's going to say, look, he wants to go to Cong- to the Senate and vote for a national abortion ban, that which you just voted against, Ohio. So I can't imagine that abortion will not be a big part of the question next year in Ohio and everywhere it can be because the Democrats suddenly realize they have a winning topic. Yeah, the the thought of this being on the ballot in 2024 again has to just be giving ulcers to the the three Republican candidates uh, for U.S. Senate. I mean, that that would be uh, a real kind of wind in the, the sails of uh, the Sherrod Brown campaign if that were to happen again, I, I would think based on what we saw this year. And all three of them are really on the books is saying dead set against it. So I don't know how you walk that back. I have a quick question for you, Rick. I know it's, uh, there are like four legislators that want to take this out of the hands of the, the, the state Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah. what, do you, what do you think the chances of that are? Well, the, the experts that we talked to about that on Friday really poured some cold water on, on whether it's possible. And, you know, it's sort of important to, to note that that is for uh, legislators. It's not something that has been floated yet by leadership within um, either chamber of the, the Ohio General Assembly. Assembly, but it was interesting to to see it. I mean, we had comments from uh, both Matt Huffman and Jason Stevens last week that essentially said this isn't over. Uh, so you, you almost have to take seriously to some degree any uh, proposal that that's floated because uh, we just don't know what what that means when they say that this isn't over. Matt Huffman is saying that you know there will be a, a constant fight at the the ballot uh, around this issue. Um, Stevens didn't say that explicitly, um, so it, it'll be interesting to see if they actually take up legislation like this. But um, the the experts we talked to last week seemed to think that this uh, was not really something that was realistic. No, because the Constitution makes it clear that lawsuits go through the courts. That was one of the most preposterous things. We're going to pass a law saying that the courts can't rule on this. The Constitution says the courts rule on this. You can't pass laws that thwart the Constitution as much as you'd like. I think there was a lot of huffing and puffing last week because they lost so big and they're all their names are on the line. But that was one of the silliest things I've ever seen. You're listening to Today in Ohio. When we reported a week or so ago about how much money Ohio was spending on vouchers for private schools, we wondered where that placed Ohio nationally. Reporter Zachary Smith has the answer. Layla, he wrote this straight down the middle, and I was surprised to hear from some who thought that this story was somehow anti-voucher because it wasn't at all. You can't please anybody. So, No. (laughs) No, he did a great job with this story. 
The the expansion of the state's EdChoice program means that we're in the top three states for spending taxpayer dollars on vouchers. Ohio is among just 14 states, plus Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico, that use vouchers uh, to provide parents and kids ways to attend different schools, though more than 30 states use other approaches that are kind of similar to vouchers. To make this comparison between the states, Zach took the total spending for the most recent school years where data was available on voucher programs in each state and then divided it by the total number of students statewide, regardless of whether they were receiving vouchers. Before Ohio expanded its program, Ohio spent an estimated $241 per capita in the 2020-2021 school year behind only Maine, Wisconsin, and Vermont. But with the budget increase for EdChoice expansion to nearly $400 million and increases to other programs of smaller amounts, the Ohio state budget has allotted $964.5 million for the current school year. That's about $514 per student. So that makes us number two. Now, there are different kinds of vouchers, some for students with special needs, for example. Ohio's EdChoice program is among the most popular in the country, with more than 36,000 students using it to get to a private school. Our program was second behind Indiana's Choice Scholarship Program, which has about 44,000 students taking advantage of it. But our state is the only one of the top three where all students are eligible for a voucher in some capacity. So by next school year, Zach tells us that as many as 150,000 Ohio students are expected to be attending school on a voucher based on the number of applications. When I uh, asked readers about the previous story, I heard from many, many, many who are alarmed by this. They feel like the legislature, Mike DeWine, have completely changed school funding in Ohio to devalue public schools without ever having asked the voters what they think about it, that there's been no conversation about this and it just keeps moving further and further in that direction. Our editorial board came out recently and said, we really need to have a statewide conversation about it. Maybe it's a good thing, but who knows? But we ought to hear from people on what they think about support for public and private schools. I absolutely agree. As a parent of three kids in public schools, I would love to have been heard (laughs) or at least to have been brought into the fold on this conversation before the train left the station here. Well, it's the accountability. Uh, Your schools where your daughters go have all sorts of accountability to the public for the tax money that's spent there. And these charter schools have a much lower level of accountability. And so a lot of the people I heard from said, look, making an even playing field. I mean, the charter schools get to cherry pick the students Mm -hmm. they get. So it's much easier to look like you're being successful. And then the public schools are left with the hardest kids to educate. And then everybody says, see, public schools are failing. It's not an apples to apples comparison. And again, we really haven't had a statewide conversation. Most people are completely unaware that this is happening. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Veterans Day was Saturday, and we had a Molly Walsh story for the day about how Cleveland has impacted veterans everywhere. A reader clued us into this one. Lisa, what's the story? 
Yeah, this is actually a great story. I love learning new things. So you've probably seen them. They're blue star banners. It's a small white banner with a red border and a blue star in the middle hanging in the windows of certain people. That designates that there is a member of the household serving in the military. Well, that blue star banner was created and patented in 1917 by East Cleveland resident Robert Quessier. He had two sons overseas in World War I when he created the flag. Both were killed in action. Um, We did talk to a couple of veterans about this. Uh, One of them was Alex Cohen of Beechwood. He was an army vet who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and he said he was proud to learn of the flag's Northeast Ohio roots. He's also a board member of the nonprofit Cleveland American Veterans Association. He says we have lots of resources and a large community of veterans here in Northeast Ohio, and they've helped more than 100 homeless veterans. He says that we've become a battle buddy for them. Another one we talked to is someone I know, um, 82-year-old Ernest Jordan of Euclid. He was a Vietnam veteran. He says that these flags honor those who were willing to sacrifice their lives for their country. And he went through PTSD. You know, a lot of people in Vietnam did. He said he had survivor's guilt. He always wondered, why not me when some of his buddies went down? He injured his foot on guard duty and he never treated it. And then it came back with a vengeance in 2010. And so he experienced PTSD because he was essentially paralyzed he said. But he found help at Fieldstone Farms, which is an equine therapy uh, place that I volunteered at for a couple years. And Ernest was always there. And I am shocked to know that he's 82 because he looks a lot younger than that. Yeah, I loved this story. And I couldn't believe when I got the note from the reader, I've lived here 27 years and I had no idea that that originated here. And I was betting that most people were unaware of it very cool how and it, and it was embraced immediately i mean it was created it mm-hmm. was patented and then within a couple of years it was everywhere so a great veterans day story well done by molly you're listening to today in ohio reporter jake zuckerman spent the second half of last week trying to figure out why so many college students failed to receive their mail-in ballots which ended up disenfranchising them rick what do we know Well, unfortunately, we know very little. It's been sort of frustrating trying to get to the bottom of this. So we first got wind of this issue on Election Day when the League of Women Voters told reporters they had become aware of some issues at Ohio State. They knew of some students who reported having not received their absentee ballots in time to participate in the election. And we wrote the story, received several responses from students saying that they had not received their ballots at Ohio State and elsewhere, including out of state. So since then, we've tried asking questions, but are getting very few answers. Uh, Secretary of State Frank LaRose initially said he had heard the reports, but his office says that they haven't gotten any direct communication about the situation. The U.S. Postal Service says it isn't aware of any problems and didn't really give us any further comment. To uh, wrap your arms around the problem, it helps to kind of understand how Ohio's election system works. It's pretty much handled at the local level with some state oversight by LaRose's office. He's the chief elections officer. So if a voter requests an absentee ballot, the whole process is handled by your local county board of elections. So at Ohio State, for instance, every voter who requested an absentee ballot likely didn't do so through the Franklin County Board of Elections. You could have had students who are from Northeast Ohio, for instance, requesting ballots from their home county that never arrived. So for this to be a problem at the election official level, it would require officials at multiple different boards of elections. There's 88 of them making the same or similar mistakes that led to students not receiving their ballots. There have been issues with delivery of absentee ballots in the past. 
Um, during the pandemic election in 2020, mail was extremely slow and overwhelmed by the number of mail-in ballots. At that time, LaRose had worked with the state's congressional delegation to get uh, USPS to fix the problem. But so far, we've heard nothing about working on figuring out what went wrong here. Yeah, I, what's amazing to me is Frank LaRose gets all excited and, and exercised about fraud that's non-existent that we really don't have. But this was a real case of disenfranchisement. And you would think that as secretary of the state, he would want to get to the bottom of it because all these kids who are trying to do probably the first time they're voting or, or one of the first and do their civic duty are brushed off. I heard from one mom who drove from Cleveland to Kent State, picked up her kid, brought the kid back to Cuyahoga County just to make sure the kid could vote. It shouldn't be that way, right? I mean, this is something that we shouldn't be the ones trying to get to the bottom of it. The elections board and Frank LaRoche should, and there just doesn't seem to be any drive to do so. I know the bureaucracy here can be difficult to, to cut through. I mean, in 2020, LaRose, as I said before, ended up having to enlist the uh, congressional delegation to uh, actually get some answers from, from USPS. So it's possible that, you know, there, there's something something happening um, behind the scenes that, that we're not aware of yet. But, you know, we're asking the questions. We're, we're just not getting a whole lot back on it. So um, we'll keep asking. Well, hopefully he'll come out and say that he's, you know, emphatically, I want answers to this. I don't want our youth to feel disenfranchised. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With voters legalizing recreational marijuana last Tuesday, what's the point of paying fees for a medical marijuana card if I can just buy the weed anywhere? Layla, are there many reasons to keep renewing the card? This is a great question, answered by a great story by Laura Hancock. The premise for the question here is that there are so many hoops you have to jump through to get your medical marijuana card. You have to have one of the qualifying health conditions for starters. Then it costs 50 bucks to the state to get the card. And you have to pay out of pocket for the visit to the doctor who is certified to issue you that card. So that's another 200 bucks on average. On the flip side, the medical card holders avoid paying an additional 10% excise tax on any cannabis product that they buy. So there could be a savings depending on how much you're buying a year. But as Laura points out, there are a lot of reasons to stay in the medical program instead of just switching to the recreational use. And these reasons go beyond money. And she laid these out for us. First, it's going to take a while to issue the licenses to the to the recreational dispensaries, probably not until sometime between next August and the end of 2024. And that's provided that the state lawmakers don't mess with the law and extend that period. And then some medical dispensaries might opt out of selling to the recreational user. We've seen that happen in some states, which that could mean that it, you know getting medical marijuana would be easier than searching for the recreational um product. And then the existing dispensaries have to build out their capacity to handle all these new customers. That could take up to a year. So medical card holders might be better off hanging on to their cards for a while to see how that goes. Also, it's possible that if supply is ever dwindling at dispensaries that serve both markets, preference could be given to those who have their medical cards. That's not written into this new law, but we've seen that happen in other states. Then there's the relationships that people have with their doctors who are specializing in the use of medical marijuana. Some people really appreciate being able to consult with their doctors when they're choosing the right products for their specific needs. 
And then another group that will likely stick with the program are children who are benefiting from cannabis for a variety of health conditions. Kids are not allowed to use recreational marijuana, obviously. So they would probably want to hold on to their cards. And 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 then finally, you know, you might choose to stick with the program to ensure that your cannabis use is protected under HIPAA. Although that one throws me because if I go in to buy it recreationally, they're not recording it, right? Right. But, the other but hand, you have a card that is recorded somewhere. Yeah, I mean, the fact that it's recorded means that it could leak. We know everything gets hacked. Whereas if I just buy it like a regular person, there's no permanent record of it. So I'm not buying that argument. Hmm. The rest of them, maybe. Good point, good point. But that one sounds like a dodge. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I I, I don't know how they, how I mean, hackers, uh, you're right. A hacker could could definitely access that that database and then, and then you know, it's it's out there. But barring that, I don't know what else, uh, you know, what other protections are there to make sure that that information doesn't leak. Yeah, that's that that just that one threw me. All right, you're listening to today in Ohio. The sports world has been afire over the pretty clear indications that the University of Michigan has been cheating in the way it steals signs from its opponents. Big game is a week from Saturday, so it's very much in our minds in Ohio. We figured a lot of people would not know much about why college football uses elaborate signs from the sidelines, and we did a story on it that ended up being fascinating, Lisa, in so many ways. What's the word? Yeah, this was written by Lance Riceland. He's a former Garfield Heights coach and also the Cleveland.com football film analyst. And he explained all the different signal types and where Michigan coach Jim Harbaugh went wrong because he said that, you know, sign stealing or trying to decode the opposing team's signs is not illegal. But what Harbaugh did is he went to a game in-person scouting of future opposing teams trying to steal their uh, codes, which is why he was suspended. So there are several different ways. There's a numerical system, which is based on the number of running backs and tight ends on each play, how the players line up, and what they're doing at the snap. So the coaches signal that by holding up a poster board with a number on it, or they use their fingers to signal the play. There are also sideline coaches that wear different colored shirts. They're all doing signals, but only one of them is the hot coach or the one who's calling the real play. So the players would know, okay, it's the red-shirted coach that's calling the real play at this time. Uh, there are also poster boards that you've seen with pictures of various symbols, like four to six symbols on each poster. And um, one of those is the hot symbol. So they know that that's the, you know, if it's the one in the upper right or left or the lower right or left, they know which one is the signal. And then there's the quarterback. And you've probably seen this. The quarterback has a wristband with like a little, you know, plastic window that holds the various plays but they can't hold every play because it's on their arm. It's also slower because um, all players look to the sideline to see what the signals are, but with the wristband, the quarterback calls the play and he has to tell everybody else. Now, uh, Riceland was saying that, you know, the NFL uses helmet speakers, you know, so the coach can talk to the quarterback and tell him what the play is. And he says, that's a great idea that would eliminate sign stealing. But he says it's probably way too expensive for high school football teams, but it could certainly work at the college level. I, th- this story just answered so many questions. When I was a kid, of course, the players would run in the play from the coach, but this right. story explained that's way too 
slow and laborious now. And I also didn't understand why they weren't using electronics in college. But man, the subterfuge they used to try and hide it. But even then, it doesn't work. Like there was one point where he said that if you see a sign late in the game on a fourth down punt that you haven't seen all game, you realize it might be a trick play. And so they right. watch for this kind of stuff. That part is legal, what Michigan did. I think it's fascinating that that Jim Harbaugh's era was terrible at Michigan until exactly the time they started this level of cheating. Uh, great stuff. Great story. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com with the fun photo. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why is Senator J.D. Vance trying to stop the Census Bureau from asking people about their gender identity? Rick, wouldn't it be nice for people to be able to register that so we could get an idea of how widespread it is? Well, that's the logic behind uh, what the the Census Bureau says that they would like to do. So Vance is joining with uh, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida in objecting to the census asking about uh, gender identity in its American Community Survey. Uh, They're saying that that would, uh, you know, I'll quote here directly, advance controversial social ideas through government surveys. So this goes back to the Census Bureau posting in September that said it was seeking approval to test sexual orientation and gender identity questions uh, on that survey. This is a different uh, count than the 10-year census. Essentially, it's an ongoing survey collecting detailed housing and socioeconomic data on U.S. households. We we see this stuff kind of come out on a rolling basis in, in between the decennial census. So the census says some agencies could use the data for different purposes, civil rights, equal employment enforcement, for example. And Vance is accusing the census of politicizing the survey by, quote, including highly polarizing and patently false topics like gender identity. He said biology determines gender and that asking the question jeopardizes the legitimacy of the entire survey. So instead, he suggested asking respondents whether they suffer from gender dysphoria. It's the latest move in the culture wars from Vance. He's, you know, introduced legislation forbidding using the ex-gender designation in U.S. passports, making provision of uh, gender-affirming care to minors a Class C felony, uh, punishable by prison time, uh, making English the official language of the U.S., uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's really strange to hear about political gamesmanship at the U.S. Census Bureau because you'd think that their their work of just kind of counting heads and assembling data about the composition of the country would be pretty much nonpartisan. Um, this has happened, though. I, I actually got to spend a day at the Census Bureau back in 2019 during a fellowship in Washington, and my impression was that these are just the kind of people who wear data geek as a badge of honor. They're they're not really political people, um, but of course, there's always you know a bureaucrat who's in charge of all of that. What I, I don't understand about this is is if you were a legislator, I would think you'd want to know how widespread this is. I mean, I, I get it. It's culture war nonsense, and it's, it's great. It gets you headlines. But on the other hand, the census, because of the science behind it, we might get a very interesting view into what percentage of America considers itself to be something that we don't expect. So why not use that research to inform your lawmaking rather than make phony claims about how it's, you know, if you're coming from a baseline of this is not a real thing though, you you can sort of see where, where they're coming from. I mean, that (laughs) that's, that's the bottom line here, right? Like they, they're essentially saying that uh, gender identity is not real. So uh, why, why ask about it? Um, 
not endorsing that, but just, you know, if that's their, their baseline, uh, you can kind of understand what, what they're trying to say here. But okay. I'm curious though, on how many, you know, because are they just going to say, are you transgender? Or are they going to ask, are you binary, queer, asexual or whatever? I mean, it could kind of open a Pandora's box. I thought it was, it was pretty simple. Yeah. It was just transgender. No, just, it was or, like male, female, or was it other or not? Or X or I don't know I what thought, it was. I thought the way I read it, there was, there were three choices. Right, right. Yeah, I'm. I'm trying to find the the exact. Uh, so a, as uh, we wrote it, uh, they were proposing testing a two step gender identity question. So the first question would ask about sex assigned at birth, and then ask about current gender. Um, and the uh, uh, current gender question would be asked of people who are age 15 and older. Um, and, uh, the response categories would be male, female, transgender, non-binary, and this person uses mm-hmm. a different term with a space to write in the response. Oh, so mm-hmm, it, it would mm-hmm. be uh, sort of open-ended. I think it would be great to get that. I think it would be a wonderful research tool to understand where America's head is at and to stop out scientific research for culture war reasons is just Wrong, 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 wrong. He's way off on this one. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've gone long for a Monday. Lots of news to talk about. There'll be lots of news to talk about Tuesday. So come on back. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Again, we'll be back on Tuesday. Tuesday.